You are listening to the official Acts 2 podcast. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.acts2orlando.com. We've got better than a team here. We've got a great family. And, and I just, even as that, all that was happening, I was hearing Holy Spirit saying this to me. And this is really important, I think. I heard Holy Spirit say this to me. Andrew, you're stewarding family well, so I'll give you more. Come on. I'll give you more. I'll give you more. It's what we want to do. It's who we want to be. It's, it's in our DNA to be family, not just doing a ministry. We can do pretty good church, but there's no life in that. We want to be family. We want connection, and that's what all of this stuff is about. With our, from our kids all the way up, it's it's generational. It's all inclusive. It's it's just it's family. It feels good. So, you guys ready to go with us? Yeah. It's gonna be fun. I'm really excited about this. Auto had also had a word this morning. I felt like this was important for us too. That. Uh, a lot of what we're doing right now is centered around making a move. Because how many here in here have families and you've had to make moves before? Yeah, yeah. It's not always the easiest thing to do. But there is such an incredible favor and grace on this thing. It's, it's, I don't even know how to describe it. I was sitting in there this morning in prayer just going, this is like butter. <laughs> it's just easy. I don't know why I say butter, but it just feels really good. It just feels that God's just dumping out on us such grace and favor to make this move, even when things like this can be very, very difficult. Yeah. And, it, and I heard this morning that we're not moving from, we're moving to. Yeah. And that it's not, we didn't make this move because our lease was up. Right. We made this move because we were hearing the Lord about doing something different. Yeah. Uh, before we even knew what was happening with our lease and all that, we knew that what we needed was, and, what we, and who we are as a church, as a DNA, we carry... God will go on with you. Not just as a church that say, God, show us where we're supposed to go, but we'll say, oh, God will go with you. You see the difference in that? One of them says, I want to know the answer. The other one says, it doesn't matter what the answer is. I'm just going with you anyway. Um, it goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. You know, when, when, when God comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to leave all this stuff and go to a place that I'll show you. It was unclear where he was going. I feel a little bit like that. I feel like it's in the DNA of who we are as a church. God's put on us from the very beginning high levels of risk and faith. Very high levels of risk and faith. It's a big deal for us to go from about 4,200 square feet to 8,200 square feet. Everything changes with that. Simple things like how do you clean it? It's little things. But inside of all of that, we don't let fear get us. We don't let any of that get us because we know that moving into this place was risk and faith faith when there was 20 of us and then we're just doing it again and I just enjoy the journey and just enjoy what God wants to do with us but I also heard this morning too that we're not moving from we're moving to and the repositioning of what God is doing with us is moving us from a little more of a central location when you look at the whole Orlando area to moving us to north and what he's doing is he, I saw him taking us as a church and facing us south with an intentionality of city 
it was an intentionality of going, okay, now everything you're doing is getting focused. Instead of it going like this, it's just going to go like this and get really focused. I still don't know fully what that means. I just heard it this morning, but there's an intentionality and I think a focus that God is giving us to move us into a no new place. It's larger because he trusts us and he's going to bring family and it's going to focus us with our, our clear directive to see transformation in the city. So I'm super excited about that. I hope you guys are, are ready. There's, there's changes. I would like to tell you what they are, but I don't know what they are. <laughs> this is our family. We're just risky people, so. Amen? Amen. Uh, hold your hands out a second. Let's just absorb a little bit. Jesus. Jesus, right now. All that you have, Lord, we just say yes to you. Yes to you. We say yes to you. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, I just really get the impression, too, people are going to get physical healing this morning yeah. in their body. Just from, it's just going to happen. It's just going to happen. People are getting physical healing, so just hold on to that this morning. I really feel like more than anything, what's happening this morning is not information, but impartation. Yeah. Yes, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I want to talk about revival this morning. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> revival. But I have to do something. I have to lead us into it a little bit. So I really want to talk about three things, and the third one will be ending <coughs> in revival. I want to talk about goodness. I want to talk about repentance. I want to talk about revival. Each one of these could be an entire message on its own. But I want to lead us through a process because I really feel like this is what God is setting us up for. First of all, goodness. What is goodness? The ongoing revelation of God's goodness is going to be the primary reason there will be a building and an ongoing and sustained revival as we move forward. We have to settle this in our hearts that God is good. Everybody say with me, God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. I really do believe, I, I, in my core, in my heart, deep down, I really do believe if the church could settle the issue that God is good and that all he does is good, it would transform the face of the church. Yes. It would transform how we operate. Because if we have any kind of belief inside of us that God is not good, or if we have any kind of belief inside of us that God is passive, I think a lot of times we see the church I have seen the church. I've been in it my whole life. I see the church looking at God, not so much as a loving father, but as a benevolent uncle. He's a good guy, and he does good things every now and then, but I really don't have a good relationship with him. Instead of him being a loving father that he's set up to be all throughout Scripture, we don't see him as being good. We see him as being benevolent. We see him as being, he's a nice guy. But until we have that shift in our thinking where we see that God is good and it does not change, he does not change. Hebrews 13, 8 says that. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is good, and the word says all he does is good. When we get this revelation of his ongoing goodness, I believe we're going to see a building and ongoing sustained revival as we move forward. Anybody want to be a part of that? Yes. It requires something for us. It really requires a shift in the way we think, a shift in the way we perceive God. That needs to be the cornerstone of, of all of our theology, that God is good. If you have that set in your mind, when you read the word, it will take a completely different meaning when you're reading it. Yes. If you read the word without the lens of Jesus and the goodness of God, 
you're going to see all kinds of things that we can build theologies on that aren't really accurate. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But the goodness of God, it will set the parameters of any building, any theological building that we do. Anybody in here know what a cornerstone is? Right? Cornerstone. I was a builder for years. I know what foundations and cornerstones and all that stuff is about. The cornerstone was the block that was laid in a foundation where all of the rest of the building was built from. It was like a benchmark that determined angles that went in all directions. And if the cornerstone was not set perfectly straight, exactly where it needed to be, as you built, everything would get progressively off because of that. I remember doing a building a number of years ago where I was called in to demolish walls, leave a foundation there, but tear down the walls and rebuild on top of it. It's a number of years ago. So we went in with that plan to do that. We went in there, we demolished all the walls, and just for fun, I thought, why don't we shoot this thing with a transit? Let's just see where we are with this foundation, because I knew that whatever we build on this thing, the higher we got, the more precarious it got. So we went in there with a the transit, we shot the thing. A transit's one of those things you see those guys looking through, right? They're looking through those things and we're taking measurements all around, distance measurements and elevation measurements. And as we were doing that, I started to notice something that from one end of the building, 60 feet from that direction, I went in the other direction, 60 feet, the building dropped three inches. And I went back to the, to the owners and I said, look, here's what we got. Here's the reality of this. You've got a crooked foundation. It's not square and it's not level. Now, I can go in and I can build on that thing, but I'm telling you that the higher we go, the more challenges we're going to have with this thing. Everything now starts getting custom wasn't in their budget to do it, so we ended up having to build on that, set, that foundation. Now, the foundation itself was solid, it just wasn't square. Are you guys tracking with me this morning? By the time we got to the roof on that building, it was so difficult to build. It was so difficult. Nothing was lining up. Everything was having to be custom. We ordered trusses for the building that are set, designed, and everything about it was just progressively getting off, and we had to adjust it. I'm saying that just to give you a picture, if you would, what it looks like for us when we build our theologies in God. If we don't have the set cornerstone being the goodness of God, then as we build our theologies, we're going to get really tilted. Things are going to start really looking awkward and weird as we build. And what we do is we end up having, we force ourselves to come up with theologies that don't line up with the word of God because we've got a foundation stone that's not straight. So we have a foundation stone it's not straight we have a small theology down here by the time we get up there we have to make this one connect to that theology and it gets so far from God that it's no longer about what God is about so I'm saying all that to say we have to have the goodness of God as the cornerstone as the foundation of the church he is perfect theology Jesus Heard Bill Johnson say that years ago. He is perfect theology. If you can't find it in the person of Jesus, you have a reason to question it. If you can't find it in the person of Jesus, you have a reason to question it. I will say it this way. If we have the goodness of God as a foundational cornerstone, it will set the parameters for what we will and what we will not tolerate. Hello? Shall I say it again? If we have the goodness of God as a foundational cornerstone, it will set the parameters for what we will and what we will not tolerate. Let me give you an example. I grew up in a church that loved Jesus. I think all churches really do love Jesus. I don't think that all churches have the goodness of God as the foundation stone. So, how many in here would say sin bad? 
right? I think we would all agree. I think every church would agree with that, sin bad. But if our cornerstone is not the goodness of God, we will look at sin inappropriately. And what we will do is we will turn it around and put sin and the responsibility of cleansing on us instead of putting it on the goodness of God. So then what we end up with in the atmosphere that I grew up in, sin bad. Nobody would disagree with that. But sin is bad, so stop doing that. Sin is bad, so get your life cleaned up. Sin, that's bad. Don't you know how bad that is? got to get your... And when it doesn't have the goodness of God as the foundation stone, it puts it all back on the individual. So what we end up with is a religious atmosphere where people are required to perform in order to look well. The problem with that is, is I can perform. Any one of us can perform, but we can't do it indefinitely. So we end up, one of two things happens. I get really prideful because I'm performing well, or I get really depressed because I discover I can't do it. Without the, pre- the goodness of God being the foundation stone, we will ultimately see sin like that. Are you guys tracking with me this morning? Yeah. When, when the goodness of God is the foundation stone, we look at sin and we no longer look at it and say, don't do that. We look at it and say, I'm not required to do that. There's a difference. Without the goodness of God, don't do that. With the goodness of God, I'm not required to do that. Big difference. That's a good word right there, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> I've discovered in this that... God lays out a lot of, in his word, he lays out a lot of what he's done and he reveals to us what his will is in the word. Would you agree with that? You can read the Bible and you can discover what his will is, but I've also discovered in learning about his will, there's really two wills of God. There's the one that is absolute and unchanging. Jesus Christ is coming back. Would we all agree with that? That's the will of God that I have to line up with. I have to line up with that. If I don't believe that Jesus Christ is coming back, then (laughs) that's not going to change the fact that he's coming back. I have to line up with that. But there are other wills and desires and the heart of God that gets laid out there that he leaves up to us. What? What are you talking about? Yeah, it's really part of his goodness and how he's going to see it manifest itself in the earth. Some wills are his desire, but he follows the protocols he set. Here's one. God is not willing that anyone should perish, right? Second Peter says that. God is not willing that anyone should perish. Okay, so now we know something, that the heart of God is set up so that not anyone will perish, and that's his will. But he gives man choice, right? He gives us choice. He's not willing that anyone should perish. I like to look at it like this. He's not willing that anyone should perish. Now we can sit here as a church and say, oh, God's not willing that anyone should perish. But the reality is, Psalm 115 says this, the heavens belong to our God. They are his alone. But he has given the earth, he's given us the earth and put us in charge. What? What does that have to do with all of this? Do you remember that little thing that Jesus did comes on the earth, reveals the Father perfectly. Hebrew says he is the exact representation of him, lives on earth, makes disciples, and then he says, Tag, you're it. And what does he say? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, make disciples, right? 
It's part of the will of God to make his goodness known through the church. Ephesians 3 tells me that. That the, that the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to all the demonic host through the church. Yes. Tag, you're it. You get to be a part of it. Isn't it wonderful? It I think it's a beautiful thing. It's very scary at some point because here's God, perfect God. He says, I'm doing all this stuff. I'm revealing the Father. And by the way, I'm going to give you another one, Holy Spirit, who is exactly like me. When he says in John, I will send you another. That word another means one exactly like me. It's not something different. He says, I will send you another. And he says, I will give you one exactly like me. He was around you. Now he's going to be in you. Now that he's in you, you guys go do what I was doing. Then you read really weird things like in 1 John where it says, as he is, so are we in this world. What? You mean I have the ability to do that? Yes, absolutely. You have the ability to do that. That's how good God is. He's so good. He's so amazing that he would take all of his goodness, all of his heart, all of his will, all of his passion, and he would say, I'm choosing you to walk in this. I'm giving it to you. Now, what we do is we'll sit here and we'll go, God, I'm not perfect. I don't have this right. There's all this stuff going on in my life. There's all this. And he's like, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. But this is how good I am. If you would trust me in this, I'll show you something that I'm so good that even in your brokenness, even in the middle of the things that you're messed up with, if you will just trust me in this and walk in it, I'm going to show you how good I am in the process. In other words, there's no excuse. But I've got sin in my life. Yeah, everybody does. I'm not condoning it. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm just saying the way that we work through these challenges is not get ourselves cleaned up and then go do. It's do, and in the process, we get cleaned up. It is both God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I don't understand it. It, it really boggles my mind, the fact that the creator of the universe would trust Humanity with humanity blows my mind. We're so messed up. We're so broken. We're so messed up. Yeah, your healing's found in the very thing that he's calling you to do. There's a thing that happens in the church sometimes, and it's really sad. I remember this happened years ago. There was a worship leader who, in the late 90s, was writing a lot of what the church was singing and worshiping to, and there was a moral failure. And all of a sudden, people started pulling his songs. Yep. Wow. What was different from before you found out and after you found out? What was different? And why would that discredit what the person was putting out? If we're not going to digest certain things because ha people have moral failures, take out the book of Proverbs. Take out a lot of the Psalms. Let's throw those away. But God's good. And what he puts out there is good. Does it come through broken vessels? Does it come through people who are challenged and have issues? I don't understand why we do that. So we take someone like that who has a moral failure and we yank them out completely. Now, I understand. Please walk with me. I mean, there are, there are consequences to the choices we make. There are. Sin carries with it its own consequence. God doesn't need to penalize people. Yeah. 
when I hear things like, oh, God's judging San Francisco, I used to hear this growing up all the time, for all the sin that's in San Francisco, and that's why there's earthquakes, and it's going to fall into the ocean. Man, if he's judging San Francisco for their sin, he needs to apologize to Jesus. Because Jesus covered sin. Wow. I don't, I don't get this fully. God puts man in charge of the planet. The planet knows it and we don't. That's why Romans 8 says, the earth is groaning in anticipation for the revelation of the sons of God. If we would just wake up to who we are and start walking in it. But I've got to get things cleaned up. I've got to get better. I've got to get my life straightened out. Yeah, good luck. Tell me something. How's that working for you? You've been doing it how long now? How's that working for you? This person who was removed from worship, years and years and years of being removed, being sidelined. And I look at that and I'm like, God, why do we do this? His healing is found in the very thing he's gifted to walk in. He has to do this. Now, I know there's parameters, and we want to walk his family and walk healthy. I get all that. I hope you're not misunderstanding me this morning. I'm not saying there are no tr consequences for sin. I'm just simply saying the healing comes in the very thing that you're designed to do. You start to discover more about God's goodness and who he is and who you are when you walk in the thing that he's already called you to do. Well, I don't know what his calling is on my life. Yes, you do. It's in the word. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, and make disciples. Start with that. Yeah. When we don't know the desire of God's heart, when we don't know that his goodness is the cornerstone and the foundation block for all of how we live, we end up doing these really, really weird things. We start begging God to do things that he's either already done or he's left for us to do. Yes. <laughs> um, you hear it, right? We have songs. I don't want to pick on songs. I mean, I'm a worship guy. I love worship and stuff, and I know we're all whatever. <sighs> we're messed up people, I know. Worship songs that say, oh, rend the heavens and come down. That sounds really great, doesn't it? He did that. <laughs> he did that. The heavens parted, the dove descended. I never see anywhere in Scripture where those heavens closed. Yeah. Never. <laughs> never see anywhere in Scripture where the heavens closed, and we need to pray for the heavens to be open. Now, do we find that in Old Covenant? Sure we do, but we need to find the answer in Jesus because he's perfect theology. Yeah. He is the revelation of the Father completely. We don't need to pray, oh God, we're in the heavens. You know what I hear when I hear, when I hear things like that? What I see is a people slipping into passivity because they say, oh, we're in the heavens, God, and then we sit there waiting for him to do it. What? Instead of lining up with the truth that he's already done it, stepping into it and go, God, there's going to be something that's going to happen. I'm stepping into this thing. I'm stepping into this thing. Or we start to beg God to do things. Oh God, will you heal this person? Will you heal him? Don't ever pray prayers like that. God, if it's your will, we know that. We already saw that in the story where the guy comes to Jesus and he says, if you're willing, and he goes, I'm willing. Case settled, done, done. He paid completely for sickness as, he well, as well as he did for sin, correct? Would we all agree on that? It's absolutely covered. Why would we go to someone and pray for them to be released from sin bondage and say things to him like, God, if it's your will, just let them be released from that. If it's your will, Lord God, let uh, the, the bondage of pornography be stripped off of them right now. 
Like God's sitting there going, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> Jesus, what do you think? <laughs> we start to beg God to do things that he's put in our trust for us to do. I like what Randy Clark says about this. He says this. Randy's awesome. He's amazing. To beg God to heal someone is to assume we have more mercy than he does. To beg God to heal someone is to assume that we have more mercy than he does. Oh, God, please heal him. God, please heal him. I'm trying to convince you, God, please, please, God, I'm trying to convince you, please. I have such a great heart for this. I wish you had the heart that I had. We don't need to be persuading God. He was already persuaded by human need. As a matter of fact, I'm starting to discover as I get older that God isn't even moved by human need. He was so moved by human need, he sent the ultimate to meet the need of humanity. What he's moved by now is faith. 2 Peter 1, 3, according to his divine power, he's given us everything we need for life and for godliness. Okay, that's one of those settled ones right there. He's given us everything that we need for life and for godliness according to his divine power. So I don't need to ask for him to give me power. I don't need to ask him to give me anything to help me live my life any better. Are you hearing what I'm saying this morning? I'm not trying to give a theology to you here, please. I'm not trying to mince words and say, don't say these words and say these words. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to say, let's step into this reality that God is so good that he's taking care of it and he's saying, now I need you guys to communicate that to the rest of the world. The gospel message is not coming to someone and saying, if you say a prayer, God will save you. That is not the gospel message. The gospel message is God saved you whether you like it or not. Do you believe it? We need a shift. We need a shift in our understanding that God is good. He's way, way, way better than we think. Way better than we think. I'm convinced a lot of the world runs from God because they haven't found the demonstration of his goodness. If they could just, just realize how good he is. He's so good. He is so good. A lot of what we do in our outreach and our ministry here is simply that. It comes from this cornerstone that God is good. And so all the ministry that we do is from that perspective. I really am not so interested in the sin that you have in your life. I'm more interested in calling out the destiny. Because the reality is, people see sin in their life really well. Yep. Would you agree with me? Yep. You can look at your life, and you can see the stuff in your own life, and you go, yeah, that's pretty ugly. That's pretty dirty. I don't like that. That holds me back. I see it for what it is. But what we don't have is something to compare it to. We compare it to humanity. It's humanism. We compare it to somebody else. We compare it to how somebody else walks. Oh, well, this person is a man of faith, or that person's a woman of faith. They walk in the power of God. Oh, they've got their life together. Oh, that family looks really good. So we compare ourselves to somebody else instead of coming back to this one cornerstone that God is good. And I need to compare everything to that right there. I need to compare everything to the finished work of Jesus Christ and look at that and go, that's my design. That's what it is. That's what that looks like. I'm not, I don't need to compare myself to anybody else. I need to compare it to this thing that he's done right here. You're absolutely righteous. You're sanctified. Woo, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. Just want to push that one on you for a little bit. 
You're absolutely sanctified. Guys, sanctification is not a process. It's a binary state. You either are pregnant or you are not not pregnant. That one was free. <laughs> Our theology has to come from the person of Jesus. In the Old Testament, what do we see? We see destruction. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus came to destroy the works of the evil one. Jesus came to reveal the Father, to testify to the truth. He's the exact representation of the Father. Everything before Jesus exposes the need, Jesus comes on the scene and exposes the answer. It pains me when people build theologies off old covenant realities and don't look at the work and the person of Jesus Christ and still live under old covenant realities. It's painful because I see it happening and it's a cyclical process in our humanity to want to try to do something that's already been done. It's painful. How many storms did Jesus bless? I saw him changing a lot of them. I saw him calming them. I didn't see him blessing any of them. Everything we see before Jesus exposes the need. From Jesus on exposes the answer. I think the way many Christians approach their concept of God actually states that they don't need a revelation of God through Jesus because it's entirely formed out of something that happened before he came. leads me to the second part of this. Repentance. We need a repentance. I'm not talking about the kind of repentance that just is enough to ease the conscience. I'm talking about enough repentance that transforms the life. We're used to that. We're used to repentance enough to where it just eases our conscience a little bit, but we need that kind of repentance that transforms a life. Now, if you've been here long enough, you guys know, what does repentance mean? It's change your mind. Right. The word metanoia in Greek literally means that. It means change your mind or change the way you think. The church, again, because we live under old covenant paradigms. How many have heard this one growing up in the church? That repentance means to turn around and go in the opposite direction. Painful. That's the fruit of repentance, but it's not repentance. When you change your mind, you will turn around and go in the opposite direction. Because you need something else to think about. I can repent so I can perform, but that's not very long-lived. Repentance means to change your mind. As a matter of fact, Romans 2.4 says it's what? that leads us to repentance? It's goodness. That's why we have to have goodness first as the foundational cornerstone. It's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. When I understand, get a revelation, get an experience, an encounter in goodness himself, Mr. Good, all of a sudden my mind starts to think different. I had 16 years of addiction in my life, hardcore addiction in my life, and I knew the word. I knew it, dude. I knew it. Memorized chapters of it every week. Had almost the entire book of Romans, almost all of Ephesians, memorized. Never helps anything, right? Never helps anything. Your word I've hidden in my head? No, my heart. (laughs) Boy, that felt good. I will write my law on their hearts. These people, they honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. They're like whitewashed tombs. They're full of dead man's bones. 
man, I can feel this right now, just this intensity. Church, we need a repentance. We need a repentance. that We don't need to gain more knowledge. We are educated far beyond our obedience. We don't need more knowledge. We need encounter. We need an encounter with goodness himself. We need an encounter that transforms us so much that we, we have something to look at. We look at it and we go, I know for me personally, when I had my encounter with goodness, I looked at Jesus completely different because he wasn't a taskmaster standing over me saying, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. Don't make my sacrifice for nothing. Looking at it as if I needed to pay him back for something he had done. How am I ever going to do that? He lays it all out there and he finishes it. He sets it in front of me and he says, son, do you believe me? Do you believe me? And the minute that I step into belief, oh my, no, my behavior changes because I've moved from goodness, partial goodness, to into goodness because I understand he's absolutely good. Absolutely good. He came along with the right size blanket to wrap me up. It's exactly what I needed. Say it with me. God, you're good. Close your eyes. Say it to yourself. God, you're good. God, you're good. Minor prophet Hosea says that in the latter days they will fear the Lord and his goodness. They will fear the Lord and his goodness. You have the fear of the Lord without an understanding of the goodness of God, you're going to fear him for the wrong reason. You may walk in a level of obedience to him and hearing him, but it's, it's one thing to listen to a father when you see him as a taskmaster cracking the whip and you're obeying because of fear of punishment. Or you're, you're listening to the Father because you just love him so much and you know he loves you so much and that he's so good and that you do these things because it not only pleases him, you find yourself in it being pleased and being fooled. Is this making sense this morning? He's not a taskmaster. He's not dr- cracking a whip. Hmm. Even our English word for repent, repent, re-again, pent, high place, where we get the word penthouse, High corners, usually on a tall building, one of the four corners that takes, it's one of the most desired places. Repent, high place. Go again to the high place. Isaiah 55, my thoughts, my ways, they're not like your ways. They're higher. They're higher. My ways and my thoughts, they're higher. In other words, come back to thinking like I think. Come back to thinking like I think. And when you start thinking about how good I am, when you start thinking about how awesome I am, when you start thinking about the things that I have set you up for, Ephesians 2.10, you're my poem. You are my, we are his workmanship. The word there is poem. That's where we get that word. I wrote you, I wrote you, Jay. He wrote you ahead of time. And that scripture says he wrote you ahead of time for good works that you should walk in before, before you ever knew about him. He set you up for you to walk in these amazing good works. You've already been handwritten. You're his poem, you're his workmanship. Repent, let's go back to the high place. Are you guys with me this morning? There's a, there's a, there's a shift we need because if we're going to carry a revival, and I want to move into that because I've gone from this whole thing of goodness into repentance, I want to move into revival. We can't move into revival without this being a foundational cornerstone. It won't be sustained. 
How many times have we seen, and I'm reading a book right now, Defining Moments, about individuals who carried power in God that moved people, that moved nations. Revivalists, people who started, and I'm looking at it and going, God, why does this ever have to end? Why does, I don't think it's in God's heart for things like this to end. I don't believe that. And I can't sit here and say, I know exactly why those things ended. I'm not going to say that. I don't know why. But I, I look at it and I'm like, if, if revival ever is going to be sustained, it's got to come back to this one foundational rock that God is good. Yes. God is good. And if any way and anything and any place that I don't think that he is good, I need to change my thinking. I need to change my thinking. Revival looks like this. Psalm 67, 1 and 2. God, keep us near your grace fountain and bless us. And when you look down on us, may your face beam with joy. Send us out all over the world so that everyone everywhere will discover your ways and know who you are and see your power to save. Keep us near your grace fountain. Do you hear the heart in that? It's like he's saying, God, don't ever let me wander from this one thing, that you're good and the sustenance, the source of life comes from you. You're the grace fountain. I don't want to wander far from this thing right here. What we do is we wander from the grace fountain. We get a taste of it and say, oh, this is great. I'm going to go do this thing over here and forget that the very source of what's going to sustain you and what you're doing is staying right near it. Revival doesn't start because of some event, church. It starts right here in our own six square feet where we come back to this. Have you ever been around somebody who's caught a revelation of God's goodness? They find out who they are. They're just in the ease of life. They're walking in this divine power and authority, and whatever they say, whatever they do, it's just like, oh my gosh. I want to be, oh my gosh, I want to be around someone like that. I know I've told this story before, but there's new people here. I'll tell it again. I want to encourage you with this. When I was, before I had my encounter with God that brought me out, I was playing in a rock band. (laughs) Doing what rock bands do. It just, you know, God grips me, gets a hold of me, I keep playing in that band for a few months. And one of the band members, one day, on a break we took, we walked out off the stage, walked back through the kitchen, standing out on the back dock. He's sitting there smoking. And he looks at me and he goes, I don't know what is on you, but I want some of that. I wasn't trying to evangelize to him. I, wasn't, I was living in this place where the grace fountain, I was so near so good. to the grace fountain that I was just pouring out of me. All this stuff, I was saying things that I didn't even know I was saying. I remember the lead band member saying something, and I looked at him, responded with that. I said something along the lines of, that's why God doesn't give us what we need, because if, we gave, if he gave us everything that we need when we wanted it, right at the moment that we wanted it, there would be no relationship with him, and we wouldn't run to him. Now, that sounds very normal, and that just came out of my mouth, but he kept going for hours after that. He kept looking at me going, man, that's good. Man, that's, thank you. That's really good. And I'm like, that sounds good, but I don't know, something connected. How many of you guys would like it if you could just have words like that that come out of your mouth, and you're not thinking, oh, what can I say here to impress this one? <laughs> you just It's coming out, and it's like it has more impact because you're living near a grace fountain. Keep us near to your grace fountain. Bless us. And when you look down on us, may your face beam with joy. Sounds like the heart cry of revival to me. I think this is the core heart cry of a revivalist. How many want to be revivalists? Sounds like Jesus to me too. 
So I want to talk about revival. These two things on revival, and then I'm going to quit. Number one, revival is sustained by giving away what we have. Because I'm not interested in revival as an event. I'm, li- I'm, li- I'm interested in revival as an ongoing, sustained move of God. About 10 years ago, when I got connected with Bill Johnson and, and Bethel and what was coming out of there, I started to look at it, and like I'm still enamored by it. But they're moving up to 20 years now of sustained revival. And I'm discovering something. There's really two things on how we're going to sustain revival. Number one is we give away what we have. Let's get our eyes off of our humanistic philosophy where I need to get cleaned up in order to give away what I have. You have something to give right now. Right now. In this very moment, you have something to give. You start giving it away, you're going to start to discover, oh my gosh, there's a wellspring of life inside of me because this thing didn't come from what I conjured up. Mm. I've recognized it with us. Mark on this house, we have incredible favor. We do. We have incredible favor. To think that in May we wanted to get into this building and they were like, absolutely not. (laughs) We're not going to even entertain it. So here we are a few months later. Yeah, sure. As a matter of fact, we'll decrease your rent from what you asked for. And oh, hmm. We have people outside the church not leaving, living in this state giving money to help us move. We have favor. So what do we do? We want to give away what we have. I'm just going to be like raw and open with you right now. Guys, there's another church that's moving into this building, a church start. You know what would thrill me more than anything? <coughs> would be able to walk out of here and leave everything in it. What? Why? Because we have favor. Mm-hmm. I would love, oh God, it would feel so good to be able to say to the pastor who's moving in here and who's starting this church from scratch, putting up his own money to pay the rent on this building because he feels like he has a call from God to see something happen here. To walk away and say, yeah, all that stuff, just move in, get going. Mm-hmm. Get going. But we can do that because we have favor, right? Hmm. Number two, revival is sustained inside family. It's a sustained inside a family. We have to think generationally. When I look at revivals that have died in the past, and I'm not saying I'm an expert on this. I'm not. But I look at it, and I see a lot of revivals were sustained by one individual. I've seen it happen even in my own lifetime where revivals will start in certain places and it's all placed on an individual. And when that that individual is not allowed to get tired. They are not allowed to be tired. They are not allowed to not speak. They are not allowed to be off. We have to think generationally about this. This is a big deal for us as a family in a house. This is why when Jocelyn is talking about our kids' ministry and stuff, there is no junior Holy Spirit. That's why we see them as sparks. We see them as little pieces of metal so hot that you can see them. They're light. There is no junior Holy Spirit. We, we with the kids, set it up in such a way that they have encounters with God. Not just getting Bible teachings. They have encounters with God. Why? Because that's what's going to sustain them. I taught high school, 11th and 12th grade, for about three years. I taught world religions and philosophy. I love doing that. One of the first things I would do when I started that class is I would go into those 11th and 12th grade students and I would say, guys, and it was a Christian school, and I would say, I want you to understand something from the beginning. You cannot live from this point on the rest of your life with your f- mom and dad's Jesus. You can't. It will not work. 
You've got to find out who he is yourself. You've you got to find out who he is. And don't think that just an apologetics class is going to make it so that you can preach the word. Because as soon as somebody can come in and argue you into believing Jesus through argument, somebody's going to come along with a better argument and argue you right back out of it. But nobody can argue away an experience. Nobody can argue away an encounter with God. Try it. You try to tell me I didn't encounter God in 99. Try it. It's like me standing there with John 9, the blind man. Who healed you? This guy named Jesus. Well, how did he heal you? Well, he just healed me. I'm paraphrasing. Well, maybe we should talk to your parents. Go ahead. Go talk to the parents. The parents say, ah, he's of age. You need to talk to him. How did he heal you? Look, you keep asking me that. Do you want to be his disciples too? (laughs) All I know is I was blind, and now I can see. (laughs) Try to argue away the experience in God. No argument. We can't pile on more theology inside of our minds and think that we're going to be good Christians. It's not going to work. We've tried it for years. It's not going to work. But you try Try taking away an encounter that somebody has in God. And, not, and then you get somebody to share the encounter they have in God, and that'll transform lives right there. Yeah. This is how we carry revival, church. Hold on to what God is doing. Hold it close. Recognize that you're a part of a family that has a high level for risk and faith. We have a high level of risk and faith. Start living in it. Start risking it in your workplace. We are not a church where I encourage people to bring people into this church so they can be saved. That is not my job. My job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I don't have the influence you have in your circle. I don't have that. I don't need that influence. You have that influence. You carry it. Everybody stand up with me here. Thank you for listening to the Acts 2 podcast. Love God, love people, and live life.